We come this morning to Matthew chapter 4. So take your scriptures and meet me there in Matthew chapter 4. I'm excited for our study this morning. I've looked forward to this for some time. Last week we examined the marvelous aspects of the baptism of our Lord. And we studied out all that was done in the historical account of Matthew. The proclamation from heaven and the coming of the Spirit on our Lord Jesus. And now this week we move from the water to the wilderness. And we change uh, geographical locations drastically, and we also change the intent and the account that we'll study this morning is so radically different from the time last week in Matthew chapter 3. We move from testimony to the messianic claim of Jesus from heaven itself to the testing of that messianic claim in real life, real temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not unfamiliar with this account. I think most of you are very familiar with the account of Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 and the testimony of the temptation of our Lord. Though I do believe that the significance of these events may be lost at times in our familiarity. And this is something of a struggle that we're going to come back to over and over again in the gospel account of Matthew. And that is, we know this story. We know this account. And because we know it and because we're familiar with it, we have a tendency as human beings to breeze past what we know about to get to what we don't know about, right? And to study something new or something that maybe isn't as familiar. And so the intent this morning is to, to move beyond our familiarity and to study and to reacclimate ourselves with Matthew's intent for writing this for the truth and the weight of the application of what we find here, and to bring some sense of um, authorial intent to this passage. I, for one, have heard sermon after sermon and read sermon after sermon. In fact, I listened to one this week from this passage that completely left the intent of Matthew in the dust only to move to the most superficial applications from this passage. And so I trust that we won't get lost in the details this morning and miss the point, but I also hope that we don't move past the details to a point where we can miss the emphasis that's here and that is ours in the context of Matthew and what we have studied to this point. Matthew chapter 4 is not altogether separated from Matthew chapter 3 or Matthew chapter 2 or Matthew chapter 1. And I hope you're getting that theme as we study the Bible together as a body. The Bible is a connected book. And the particular sections of our Bible that are, that are correlated by one author, particularly the Gospel accounts, are connected pieces of evangelistic history. They are not spliced and disconnected. They have unity, they have cohesiveness, and they have a central message and theme. Matthew's theme is to reach the Jewish people with the message that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah King and His kingdom is here. It's going to get a lot clearer that that is His theme when we reach the Sermon on the Mount, which is another familiar piece of territory in our New Testaments. But Matthew is very concerned for you and he's concerned particularly with the Jewish people that they understand that the King is here and that the kingdom is at hand. 
The promise of a Messiah, of a suffering servant for the nation of Israel has been fulfilled. That's his theme. That's his point. And he hasn't departed from that when we reach Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 fits into our understanding broadly of temptation to sin. In fact, if I were to ask you on the fly, just seeing you out and about, maybe at a restaurant or something, hey, I've got a friend who's struggling with temptation. What passages would you give me that I could bring to bear on temptation to sin? I think Matthew chapter 4 would be on the top of many of your lists. And rightly so. Rightly so. Scripture doesn't have a lot to say, or doesn't have many portions about temptation to sin, but this one fits into the broader spectrum of what we know about temptation. One of the primary ones for us to understand is James chapter 1, beginning in verse 14 and 15. James reminds us that as sinful, fallen people, temptation does not only come from the outside in, that being from the tempter, providing temptation for us, but flows primarily as sinful men from the inside out. And so our hearts are tempted as we are drawn away by our desires. So there's a twofold aspect to temptation when we come to the biblical whole of teaching on this subject. One would defend what we find in Matthew chapter 4, that the tempter is active and his servants are active in providing a lure for you, a deceptive alternative to the truth. He's active, he's there, he's real, Satan is at work, his demons are at work providing opportunity for deception for you and for me. And there is a real sense in which we are tempted as well from our own hearts. Oftentimes Satan didn't need to work very hard to tempt us because our own desires drew us away. We were deceived in and of our own selves without meditation, without submission to the truth. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 3.5, if you're wondering, references temptation from the outside in, even for us as Christians. So don't get lopsided in James chapter 1 that there is no temptation from outside in. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 5 says, Paul says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter, that being Satan, had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Paul was concerned that the church at Thessalonica could have fallen prey to the temptation from the tempter, specifically. So Matthew chapter 4 informs us, it illustrates for us what the remainder of our New Testament, our scriptures, teach us about the doctrine of temptation to sin. It is particularly encouraging to us to come to Matthew chapter 4 because of what we find in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 is one of the most encouraging passages in our New Testament, for it says that since we have a great high priest, verse 14 is what I'm reading of Hebrews chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. He is who he says he was, let's hold fast to our confession. For why? Why? What's the reason? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is not sitting on a 
prestigious throne, looking down at lowly men and saying, I have no understanding of what you're going through. Verse 15 says, But one, one high priest, who is in every respect, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There's a dual, there's a dual praise there. He understands it, he has been through it, and yet he has not fallen prey to it. Let us then, with confidence, verse 16 says, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us that the account, the historical account of Matthew chapter 4 should stand as a marvelous encouragement to our faith. It should bolster our confidence in our high priest. It should develop and it should fill out our praise and our worship and our allegiance to him. And we should walk away from our time here glorying in the person of Jesus Christ. And I trust that's what we'll accomplish this morning as we study this text. Now, there are some questions to be answered when we come to Matthew chapter 4. Many of you who are serious Bible students have had these questions in your mind. So what are we to understand? How are we to apply or live out our lives in accordance with the temptation of Christ. How does it match up to our existence as Christians? We are fundamentally different than Jesus Christ. Newsflash. We are utterly different in nature, in bent. We are directed towards our flesh. So how is it that we are to live in light of what we find in Matthew chapter 4? How are we to see the inspired intent for this passage And how are we to apply that intent to our lives? Those are the questions that come to me as a student of the Word of God, and I trust that those are the questions that we can answer, at least with some clarity this morning as we study this portion of God's Word. All right, let's read it together, and uh, then we'll dive into our time of study. Then Jesus, verse 1, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, that being Jesus, answered, It is written, Men shall not, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple And said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, this is Satan speaking, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord for our study and consideration this morning. Now, I love passages that help us with introductory material in the passage. 
And that's what we have here. So we're going to start with just an introductory look at what's happening in the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are the details that surround these three temptations from Satan to our Lord Jesus Christ? What's going on here? And we begin in verses 1 and 2 really to find the context of the temptation. The first word of of verse 1 is then, and it directly ties us back in Mark 1 informs us that it ties us back to the immediate, the immediate response to the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, there is no gap, there is no time delay. Immediately upon exiting the water, Jesus is led to the wilderness. Jesus has just been confirmed from heaven as the beloved Son of the Father. The Spirit has just descended and rested upon Him, marking Him as the promised Messiah. And now immediately, straightway, out of the water, he is led into the wilderness. Now this may seem petty to you, and it is just a way for us to take an opportunity to think a little bit deeply. The next word in verse 1 is Jesus. And I don't do this to you often, go word by word like this, but Jesus raises a question for us, and it's a good question, and it's a good place to start with this question, because we need to ask some questions about who Jesus was to even understand rightly his temptation. Jesus is 100%... Good, I got two answers, and that was right. Good, we merged those together, and it came out very funny to my ears, but it was the right two answers. He, was, he is 100% God, and he was 100% man. Human. Human. Not God in a bod, not the form, not a wrapper that looked like a human on a, on a content that was actually God. He was fully God and He was fully man. And so this one who is led up into the wilderness is none other than the God-man. Now let me explain just briefly why this is important. There have been countless discussions about the validity of the temptation of Jesus. How valid is this as an encouragement to us? How real is the sense of his temptation? Why? Because as God, he was unable and without sin, utterly holy, correct? Yes. Yes, you should affirm that. He was. And so as God, how could it be that God was tempted, even in the human form, in the incarnated form of Jesus, how was he tempted in a way that would even relate to us. He never understood the propensity to sin. Did he even have the potential for sin in his temptation? And if he didn't have the potential to sin, how was it that this was even temptation? And How is it that Hebrews 4 tells us that he's sympathetic to us if he was tempted without any desire or any propensity or any potential to sin? The mystery of the Incarnation is that His full deity never minimized His full humanity, and His, whole, and his full humanity never minimized His full deity. And in other words, these two truths about Christ, and they should make our minds hurt, because we can't correlate them, we can't make that work mentally, but these two realities of His nature, He was 100% God and He was 100% man, in no way contradicted the opposite nature. You following? Nothing about his deity 
offset or put aside parts of his humanity. And nothing about his humanity offset or put off his deity. He came, humbled himself, left his glory in heaven, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, which was the prerogative of the second person of the Trinity, and he humbled himself as a servant to the will of his Father, but he was no less God because he was human, nor was he any less human because he was God. Now your heads are spinning all because of the word Jesus, the second word of verse 1, and you're thinking, how long and how deep are we going to go this morning? We'll pick up the pace. Both the temptation and the victory were real for Jesus Christ. And now I'm going to say something that I fear will cause more confusion, but it is important for us to understand. In his humanity, in his humanity, temptation was real and valid. And as a human being, Jesus was tempted to sin. The option was there. It was available to him as a man. And in his deity, there was no potential that he would ever sin. And the perfect unity of those two contrasting truths leaves us with what we call a paradox. And a paradox is a word that we ought to get comfortable with because a paradox is a seeming contradiction. So, Jesus was without a doubt sinless and unable to sin in full deity. And he was potential, he was a potential prey of this temptation in a very real sense in his full humanity. Those must contradict in our minds, and yet they do not contradict because of the revelation of the Word of God. I've thought about this several times, and I've never brought it to our time of study. But there's a passage in the Old Testament that's very important to us. And it's Deuteronomy 29.29. 29, and you ought to mark this passage just because you're going to reference it over and over again. It says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29.29. We come to the temptation of Jesus and we are met with a Deuteronomy 29.29 potential. What is revealed belongs to us. We must acknowledge it. We must accept it. We must live in light of it. We must do in accordance with what we see. And yet what is not revealed belongs to the Lord. And so it is not our job. It's not my job this morning. It's not your job this morning or the remainder of your time studying the book of Matthew to put together what the Lord has not revealed. And what he has not revealed is how the perfect humanity of Christ and how the perfect deity of Christ were in perfect harmony and yet he was fully tested just as we are yet without sin. He didn't tell you how. So I am here this morning to take it off the hook for you. You don't have to think about it. You can affirm what you know to be revealed that he was fully God and yet he was tempted just like we are. And you can rest in the mystery of what is unrevealed. For it is wrapped up in the perfect and holy and other mind of God. He is not like us. He is not one of us. Our Father in heaven, his mind is his own. God's ways are his ways. And we do not stand in judgment or in analyzing his perfections. 
but we acknowledge the mystery and the difficulty of the paradox found in Matthew chapter 4. Now, you may have never thought of that. If so, I'm sorry to have opened up a whole new can of worms for you, but I think it was important for us to assess and to think rightly about Jesus in this time frame. Okay, all that. We got to the second word. He led by the Spirit. That's the exact same Spirit who descended on him at the baptism. And that Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. And there's really one goal for this leading into the wilderness. There's one end, and it's very clear to us. It is to be tested. It is to be tempted. Now, the, the word, the term that's used for tempted and tested is, is a neutral term. It really is. It's a neutral term. The testing is not good or evil inherent in the word tempted or tested. And we think of tempting only with an evil, with an evil bent on it, right? I mean, that's kind of the package that we think of when we say, I was tempted. It always means, or generally means, that we're speaking of temptation to sin. The word itself is neutral. It is not speaking inherently of evil, but... Its morality is tied to the one doing the testing. Right? So God does not tempt you. He tests you. And we could use the same word. It is the same word used of God's testing and tempting of you. But it is inherently good for it comes from an inherently perfect source. The flip side is true in Matthew chapter 4. The temptation to which Jesus is going in the wilderness is inherently wicked and evil because the source is none other than the devil himself, the slanderer, the deceiver, the tempter himself, the enemy of God and all that is in God's purpose. This is real. Satan was there. There was only one purpose in his visit to the wilderness to meet with Jesus of Nazareth, and it was to test and to prove invalid the claims that were made at the baptism of our Lord. That was his goal. His goal was to thwart the plan of God. It was to invalidate, to do away with the claim that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If Satan could triumph in tempting Christ to move away from the Father and his submission to the Father's will, he would have scored the greatest victory in his existence. He was victorious once, with the first Adam. He came to the garden, and it was easy street. There was no fight even put up. Now he comes to the second Adam, and he attempts to have victory, the ultimate victory here in the temptation of Jesus of Nazareth. The devil was the agent of the testing, which informs us that the temptation was, in fact, temptation to sin. It was real temptation for evil. Now, wrapping up the context of where we are this morning, we come to verse 2, and again, Matthew understates in a severe way. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. He was hungry. I fast for 40 minutes in between, and I'm hungry. Uh, My stomach is informed by a wealth of food. So it will send alarms to me that it needs more way before it really does need any more. Matthew here understates the obvious. Jesus was out there for 40 days without food. He would have had water. Otherwise, he would have died. He had water, and yet he fasted from food for 40 days and 40 nights. And most of us cannot comprehend 
the weakness that would have been his physically at this point. So here he is. He's hungry. Matthew has understated this reality. You know, it's another proof to the inspiration of God's word that there is no embellishment of this event. Uh, This could have been an elaborate story about what went on during these days in the wilderness, these 40 days without eating. We don't know what happened. We don't know what went on. We know he was tempted throughout that time because of the other gospel accounts, but there's really no information. He may have just been communing with the Spirit and with his Father, preparing for his ministry. As the Old Testament fasting often led to further ministry. Yet we don't know, and the understatement is, he was hungry. Matthew is concerned with just the basic facts. In fact, in this case, the understatement is such a profound way to set up what we're about to read. Don't lose the weight of he was hungry. Matthew could have said he was at his weakest point. He was devoid of physical strength. He was left with nothing to pull from as a resource physically as a human being. And it is at this bottom point that the temptation comes. And just a side note, you all understand that you are weak when you are weak physically. You are vulnerable when you are weak physically. And it often leads to immense vulnerability in the spiritual sense. Whether it's through illness or hunger or some other case, sleep deprivation, all of these things open us and make us vulnerable to failure. So here's our Lord. Here he is at the bottom, humanly speaking, without food, and he is hungry. Now, this morning, for the rest of our time, we're going to jump right into these temptations, and we're going to spend our time focusing on what, what goes on here and what the point is for us as God's people. And, and I think we've spent enough time setting it up. But this morning, we're going to examine the threefold temptation of Jesus. That's what we're going to study. Three separate temptations from Satan, so that we may worship his proven character and follow his proven example as humble disciples of his kingdom purposes, okay? That's a long way of saying we're going to focus on worshiping Jesus because of what we find out from Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to challenge ourselves as God's people and by his grace to follow as his disciples the example given to us from the temptation and the proving of Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. All right, that's our goal. That's our stated purpose. And I trust our time will fulfill that. Now, let's move then to verse 3. And the tempter comes onto the scene. And let's see the temptation and response that first encounters our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read it together. Verse 3 says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered that being Jesus, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, to help us understand, and that's all I'm attempting to do, I've categorized these in naming the three temptations with a question that should encapsulate, I trust, the nature of the temptation. What was Jesus being tempted to do? And so temptation number one is framed in a question this way. Is the Son, that's a capital S, is the Son to trust in the Father's provision? Is the Son to trust in the Father's provision? The tempter comes and he speaks with 
clarity, he says, if you are the Son of God. And in our language, right, when we say, if you are, it oftentimes betrays our doubt that that's actually true. Satan here uses this clause, if you're the Son of God, and in the Greek language, there is a way to insinuate either the negative or the positive. In other words, we can understand him as saying, if you're the Son of God, and who really thinks you are? I mean, come on. Or he could be saying, if you are the Son of God, and for sake of argument, I'll give it to you that you are, then so-and-so. And that is the case, the second is the case, when we come to Matthew chapter 4. He repeatedly says, if you're the Son of God, and Jesus then is granted by Satan that that is true. For the sake of argument, Satan says, I'm going to assume that your claim to be the Son of God is actually valid. So, some commentators have even simplified it to say, since you are the Son of God. It's not so much that Satan is testifying to the sonship as he is giving it for the sake of argument. He's granting that as reality. And then here is his temptation. If this is true, and for the sake of argument, we'll assume that it is, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. The temptation in its essence, was for the natural physical need of Jesus in the very real element of his humanity, right? It was very real and very valid for the Son of God, the creator of the world we know, to make for himself food out of anything that he desired. This was appropriate for the Son of God. This was appropriate behavior for one who was the co-heir of heaven. This is not outside the bounds of the messianic glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just take some food, Jesus. Just make it out of these stones. You are the Son of God, after all. It's your right. It's your right. And so the question becomes, is the Son to trust in the Father's provision? The test was whether the Son who had surrendered His glory, Philippians chapter 2, at the Incarnation, as a, and had come as a servant, would trust the Father's provision for Him in His new earthly ministry. He has, just, he has just been crowned King. He has just been declared in a human setting that He is the Son of God. His ministry has just begun. And Satan, right off the bat, preying on his weakness physically, says... Can you really trust the Father? You're the Son of God. Surely it is your right to make food for yourself. Look at you, Jesus. Look at you. How far you've fallen from your glory. Make yourself some food. Jesus' response is so short and abbreviated and potent. I think the testimony of my heart, and I know it's yours too, is just to be able to live a life that says it is written. That's why we're here, right, this morning. I mean, part of why we're here together, why we've gathered, is we want to have lives that are marked by it is written. We want to be able to answer the temptations of Satan and the temptations of our own hearts with it is written. Jesus doesn't hesitate. Here he is in the weakest state physically he could be in, and he immediately responds with verse 4, but Jesus answered, It is written, Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word is the consuming passion, and it is the only weapon that Jesus wields against the tempter. His response comes to us from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, and it's speaking to the nation of Israel in the wilderness experience. And you remember how much griping and grumbling went on in the nation of Israel because of their loss for the taste of manna. Before that, it was because there wasn't manna. So we need manna. After manna comes, we get tired of manna. Can we get something else? And when something else is provided, well, there's too many quail. I mean, this is just too much bird to eat. And there's complaining after complaining after complaining. Repeatedly, the nation of Israel said it would have been better just to go back to Egypt so we could eat. We're baffled by that. And yet this powerful verse comes from that section of Scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, my life as the Son of God is not wrapped up in physical provision. It is wrapped up in the words of my Father. Satan, you have missed the boat. I have come as the incarnate Son of God, not to be provided for with food and clothing and housing, but to come to accomplish the word and the will of my Father. That is my sustenance. That is my provision. That's the provision of my Father. And I will not turn from that purpose. This is the words, these are the words of Jesus of Nazareth. So, it's here, and I, I, this is where I really want to focus your heart for just a moment because the rest will fit into this. But it's here that we get a picture of what temptation is. And I am so burdened for my own heart and for yours that we get an accurate view of temptation. Nine times out of ten, 99.9% of the time, temptation is almost truth. Temptation is almost truth. It's deception And those who deceive and the tempter who is all about deceiving you and thwarting the purpose of God, temptation is always cloaked in almost truth. It is a battle for discernment. It is a battle for the ability to see error when it presents itself in front of you. See, there's so much about what Satan presented to Jesus that's true. There's so much about it that was right. Satan did not show up with his pitchfork and his big red horns and say to the Lord Jesus, you should be a follower of hell's purposes. You should be a follower of my design. He comes in the weakness of our Lord Jesus Christ, no doubt coming alongside of him and speaking to him softly, says, Son of God, make some bread for yourself. The message was no different. He was claiming and he was pushing Jesus to follow the demands of Satan's kingdom, of hell's kingdom, and yet the deception was almost truth. And what defined for Jesus error from truth? How did he discern what was truth and what was not truth, what was deception? He discerned it because of the abiding presence of the word of God, the written word of God. To discern truth from fiction, we, like Jesus, must abide in and rely upon the claims of the Word of God. It is your offensive weapon. It's your sword. 
and the Spirit will use it in your battles with deception from the tempter and his servants in this world system. Folks, listen, there is no way for you to battle successfully in temptation in your life without the Word of God renewing and informing your mind. The tempter is clever. The tempter is wise in his ways. It is so vital for us to live an it-is-written lifestyle. We must not miss the example of the promised one in his temptation. Abiding in the truth is the safeguard against temptation. You say, well, how do I abide in the truth or how do I know if I'm abiding in the truth? What's the meditation of your heart? What's the consuming thought on your mind? What are the words on your lips? What controls us, drives us, what motivates us, what are our priorities built upon, how do we principally make decisions in our lives, all of these things will inform us how much we are abiding in the truth. Do we regularly assess our motives? Do we regularly assess our lives and the priorities of our lives in accordance with what we find to be revealed in the Word? Or do we cruise through life, adding Jesus onto our agenda, and continually pursue our own goals, our own end, and are consistently tempted and fall to any deception that comes along. The Word is the basis for victory, and our Lord wields it consistently throughout. Temptation number two, beginning of verse five, going through verse seven. Temptation number two. Second question that should encapsulate, is the son to trust the father's provision was the first one, verses 3 and 4, or is he to go about it his own way, in his own, uh, on his own agenda? Second question is, is the son to rely on the father's protection? Is the son to trust or rely on the father's protection? So provision is offered with a counterfeit method for provision albeit an almost truthful way for that to be accomplished. And now provision is offered, or protection rather, is offered to the Lord Jesus with a counterfeit method for that trust and confidence in the Father. Verse 5 says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, or on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, and again, let's assume for the sake of argument that you are, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So, again, Jesus is assumed for the sake of argument to be who he has claimed to be and who he has been professed to be by heaven itself, by the Father's words. And the devil takes him now to the holy city. The holy city is Jerusalem, right? The temple is in Jerusalem. And he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, I don't know about you, but this does raise some questions. First of all, how did they get from the wilderness and the stones to the pinnacle at the temple? Maybe I need to tell you about the pinnacle. That's 450 feet above the ground, as far as we can tell. That's at Herod's portico, which is a little little sliver that came out over the backside of the temple. People would have been all around this area. And now Jesus is on the pinnacle, standing there, looking down, and evaluating whether or not he's going to jump. That is the temptation from Satan. 
Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. Did he hike from the wilderness to the pinnacle at the temple? We're going to see that immediately after this event, they go to the mountain, a high mountain in the region, where they can see, obviously, vast distances. Now, there is, there is some debate about this event. Was it a miraculous movement from one place to another? Certainly not outside the bounds of what we know of, of Scripture, what we see exemplified. Was it a vision where Christ was taken there From an Old Testament perspective, we've seen this before, where there was vision that had actual activity involved in the vision. And the spiritual understanding doesn't undermine the validity or the point of Jesus' temptation. So whether Jesus hiked to the pinnacle and was unseen by other people, or we just don't have record that he was noticed standing on a pinnacle, the one who had just been baptized by John in the Jordan, or whether he went there by way of vision and he was actually spiritually there, We don't know. But we understand this temptation to be as valid and as real in either sense. The devil comes, the devil takes him, and now they're on the pinnacle of the temple. They're standing, whether literally or in a vision, they are standing on the pinnacle of the temple. In fact, Josephus tells us that Jewish tradition is that James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred by being thrown off of this point of the temple and being smashed on the ground below. So here they are, they're on this massive uh, this massive pinnacle, this dangerous spot, and the temptation was to test the validity of the claim of the Father at the baptism. Okay, Jesus had been baptized and the Father said, "This is my beloved son. This is the one I will care for. This is the one that I love. This is the one I show my favor towards." And Satan now tempts Jesus with the validity of that statement. Did, in fact, the Father care for the Son? Would He, in fact, protect the Son? Was it true? Is the Son really to trust the Father's protection? Satan here, in his clever, deceptive ways, utilizes and really abuses Psalm chapter 91. Let's flip back there. Psalm 91, Satan using the Word of God to tempt the Son of God. Unbelievable events here in Matthew chapter 4. Psalm 91, verse 11, is what Satan recounts as proof texting for his temptation. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Uh, He omitted to guard you in all your ways. There's no reason to understand that as some subtle form of deception. That falls within the natural way that the Old Testament was quoted. He was making a point, Satan was, and he used the Old Testament to try to make his point. He speaks again. He speaks almost truth. It was true that if the son were to fall into danger, that the, that the father would protect him. It was true. And yet here Satan tempts Jesus with that truth statement and with that reality to put his father to the test, to doubt the validity of the protection of of his father. 
You see the deception that's here in the tempter. You see how close this is to truth. You see how close this is to being reality. And yet Jesus responds, and He said to him, Again, it is written. I love the word again being quoted from our Lord. And obviously for Matthew to record this, Jesus was the one giving this account. Certainly Satan wasn't the one attesting to this event. So Jesus told them what he said. Again, he said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is quoted from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. The persistent ministry of the Word was informing the discernment of the weakened Jesus. It was the lamp to his feet and it was the light to his path. Again, the word is brought to bear. And again, this speaks of the nation of Israel in its original historical context. And particularly, this speaks of the water coming out of the rock. Remember this? Remember that event? They were thirsty. They needed water. So speak to the rock. And he hit the rock. Tempting the Lord their God was forbidden. They were not to tempt or to test his words. He was to be trusted for His character's sake. And so again, Jesus wields the Word of God as His sword and He uses it on the offensive to protect Himself against the subtle deception of Satan. The Son must not put the promises of God, His Father, to the test, but rather live in the full assurance that the promises of His Father are sure, for they originated from His character and His holiness. Folks, it has not changed for us. This is the great deception of our lives, is to not believe that what He said, He meant. And that what He promised, He would fulfill. And that He is trustworthy inherently in His character. This is our struggle. This is your struggle at work. This is your struggle with your finances. This is your struggle in your marriage. It is to trust the promise of God and to live in accordance with that promise. We are so tempted to doubt Him. We are so riddled with doubt of His goodness and His control. It is our temptation to put Him to the test, to evaluate God, to see if in fact what He said He would actually do. That's a wicked and sinful response in reflection of the character of the One who has promised. We must not put our Lord to the test, but rather rest in His promises for His character is proven and His word is sure. And this draws my mind back to the book of Psalms and the 19th Psalm particularly. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Verse 7, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice our hearts. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules or the law of the Lord, they are true and righteous altogether. They are true. They are to be trusted. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward." The word of the Lord is to be treasured, it is to be loved, and it is to be trusted. 
you and I serve the same Father that is represented in Matthew chapter 3. That God has not changed. He's the God of Abram that we read about this morning. He's the God of Moses. He's the God of the nation of Israel. He's the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and his word is sure. If he has promised protection, he will grant it. His ways are perfect. And so Jesus stands now in purity and in holiness after being tempted twice. One, to doubt the provision of his Father for his needs. The second, to doubt the protection of his Father with his life and his ministry here as the Son of God on earth, the Messiah. And now Jesus turns to his third and final temptation from Satan. And Satan here has an elevated sense of desperation. We can almost see the beads of sweat and the anger boiling underneath the surface for Satan. His plan is not working like he thought. He's not coming to victory over the purposes of Yahweh God, his creator. And now we come to the third and final temptation. Here's the question. Is the son to submit to the father's plan? Is the son to submit to the father's plan? Is the son to trust and depend upon the father's provision? Is he to rely on on the father's protection? And now finally, is the son to submit to the father's plan? This is the temptation that we find beginning in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, not just visually showed him the kingdoms, as in that region over there is this kingdom, that one over there is this one, but he also examined their glory, the wealth of these kingdoms, the benefit of these kingdoms, and he said to him, All these I, Satan, will give you Jesus of Nazareth, if you will fall down and worship me. This is a radical temptation. The gloves are off. The kitty gloves are off for Satan. He's furious and he is making one last desperate attempt to thwart the plan, the master plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. So here they are looking at the kingdoms and Satan now reaches desperation and tempts Jesus with a shortcut to the glory that was his. Right? All the nations, all the kingdoms, all their glory, they belong to the Son of God. He will reign as King of kings. They are his. They are rightfully his. And yet in the plan and the wisdom of the Father... Jesus would only come to exaltation and glory over all nations and all kingdoms in the sacrifice that would be made at the cross, in the resurrection that would be His three days later, in His ascension and in His return to be victorious over the nations of the world. That was and is the plan of the Father. And it was the purpose and the design of the Son as well. And here Satan offers a shortcut one that he could not fulfill. And yet he offers this shortcut as the prince in the power of the air, one who has been given freedom in this world for a time. He offers the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. The cost for the shortcut is radically high, for it was nothing less than the worship of Satan as the Most High. This has been the goal of Satan from his very creation. Right? He reigned in heaven. 
He was a leader in heaven. God granted him honor, and yet he wanted more. He wanted to be known and to be worshipped like the Most High. His character has not changed. And upon his exodus from heaven, his goal has been to thwart the plan of God, to win over as many as possible to his purpose, which is to be worshipped as the Most High. And even here, he comes to Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the one set apart as the suffering servant from Isaiah, the one who has been promised from the Old Testament, the one who has the rightful lineage to the throne of David and to the promises of Abraham, the Messiah. And he offers a shortcut with a high cost. The temptation was for Jesus to accomplish the same end without the means to that end that God had ordained. Right? This is pragmatism at its finest. It's just a means to an end. So let's change the means and let's get the same end. And when we change the means, in this case, it would be to set aside the plan of your Father in heaven, to set aside your service to His will and direction, and to follow after my plan, my shortcut, that being Satan's plan and shortcut. Jesus you'll get the same thing in the end. You'll still get to be the king over all the regions and all the kingdoms of the world. It'll only cost you a bowing down and a worshiping of me as the most high, Satan says. And if Satan has met desperation, then our Lord Jesus has met the end of his rope. He's weary of this process. He is angry in righteousness. And with an exclamation point and probably a shout in his weakness, verse 10 says that Jesus said, Be gone, Satan. I've had enough of your temptation. And his for it is written lifestyle continued to be an example to us. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And the second phrase is just as vital as the first. Not only is there to be worship of one true God, but service to that God is the fitting, the fitting result of that worship. So to sacrifice my service to the purpose of God's will would be to worship something other than the Lord our God. This is the response of Jesus. God alone is to the object of worship and His plan is to be served by all, especially His Son. And Satan will never have his wish for the worship and the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. It will never happen. This is Deuteronomy 6.13 that Jesus quotes, staying right within the Deuteronomy 6-8 section, speaking to the nation of Israel again, that they should worship Yahweh God alone and serve Him alone. And we know the challenge that that was to the nation of Israel as sinful people. So the son stood. He withstood the testing and he was proven to be faithful to his role as the servant and the son of God. He came as God of very gods and yet he served the purpose of his father. All the way to the garden we see the temptation to step away from the purpose and to shortcut the end that he knew was his. 1 John 2 has to come into play here because 
it gives us such a clear picture of what we see. 1 John 2, turn there if you would, just with me, just for the sake of cross-referencing and marking your Bibles. It's important for us to see passages that help us understand other passages. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here is the the capsule of what the world stands for, and here is what Christ was tempted with in every way, just as we are yet without sin. The desire of the flesh, that being your body, your bodily desires, and the desires of the eyes, that being the visual perspective of what we see and desire, and the pride of life or pride in possession, that is what we can gather to ourselves. It's not from the Father, but it is from the world. Jesus suffered temptation to its fullest, and yet he stood faithful and obedient to his Father. He had the right lineage. He fulfilled the prophetic word of the Messiah. He was affirmed as the Messiah from heaven in his baptism as he identified with the faithful remnant of Israel, and now he has been tested and it's been proven. He is, in fact, Jesus the Messiah. He is the promised one. The testing has been accomplished. He has been proven to be true. And Matthew's point, ultimately and primarily, is Jewish nation, you have no excuse. And Grace Church, we have no excuse. We must worship Him. We must follow Him. Our lives must mirror our allegiance to this proven, tested and pure Son of God. This is the reality of what we find here. Secondarily, we, as we follow this Son of God, we see a tremendous example laid before us of the battle with temptation. We find ourselves falling far short of an it-is-written lifestyle. Took the Word of God meditated upon its realities and on its truths and used it as the sword that it was intended to be. It is our offensive weapon. We do battle with the Word. We must be consumed with it. Now, back to Hebrews chapter 4 before we conclude. And Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was tested in every way just as we are. I want you to understand something. Think about it with me just this morning. It's been a powerful meditation in my mind. For several years since I first encountered this thought, and that is, Jesus was tempted way beyond what we have experienced in temptation to sin. You know why? Because he never sinned. So it went to its fullest degree. We have never experienced as sinful men and women the full extent of temptation. We have caved long before we felt the full weight of temptation. You say, what is the, what's the point of that statement? The point is, is that when you come before your high priest who makes intercession for you, who mediates before God for you because of his sacrifice and his righteousness, when you meditate on his character and his relationship to you, understand that this is one who has been tempted to the fullest He sympathizes with you. Your Lord feels for you. 
It'll be our temptation as a church to be intellectual about God, to be factual about God. And yet God, in the person particularly of His Son, Jesus Christ, who walked this earth with human beings, is intimately related to those who are His. This should be a tremendous encouragement. Verse 11 concludes the passage this morning with another understatement. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. That's a powerful last verse for this section because it marks a transition and a really a reward for the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ in his testing. The devil leaves. He's been defeated once again, and he will be ultimately defeated by this same one. So he's been defeated. He has suffered again and knows that his head will be crushed by the heel of this one. And behold, angels come and are ministering to him. Isn't that amazing? Angels come. The same angels who would have protected him. That was the point of the temptation. Surely ministering to him just means serving his needs. That's what that word means. Surely these angels brought a feast for our Lord Jesus Christ. They brought nourishment, food, something for him to eat. And without doubt, they brought encouragement to his ministry from his Father in heaven. They ministered to, they served the Son of God, and the word here is that they continued to do so. This was an ongoing part of his ending to his temptation. They came and they were ministering. That's an accurate translation. They were ministering. They continued to do so to our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? The Lord's been tempted. He's been tried, and his refusal to sin has settled his claim. It's proven his claim again. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the Promised One, the Suffering Servant, the Friend of Sinners. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. This passage has really two particular applications for us this morning as we sit here with it open before us. One is it, it, it exposes to us our lack of faith in this one to be who he claimed to be. You might sit here this morning as something other than a follower and a worshiper of Jesus of Nazareth. If that's the case, let me remind you that what he said was true. He is the provision for sin. You must pay for your sin. Death must be the result of all sin. And you as a sinner sit here condemned to die. And yet this one, this proven one, Jesus, came, lived on this earth without sin, though tempted and tried, and died that we might be counted as righteous on his behalf. In other words, God would look at the righteousness of Christ for those who would place their faith in him and that righteousness would cover their sin. Your response must be repentance and it must be faith, turning from your sin and placing your confidence in our Christ. Those of you who follow Christ and who are disciples of his kingdom cause and his purpose must be bolstered in your allegiance we should come to this passage and we should be in awe of the Christ that we serve. We are slaves of Christ and he is a great master, a pure and tempted master who sympathizes as a high priest for us. 
And then lastly, as God's people, there is no doubt that we must follow him, not just in his word, but in his example. We must battle with temptation. Battle and war with temptation. Whether we find it in our weakest point or in our strongest, we must take heed if we think we stand, lest we fall. And yet the Lord has provided a way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, from temptation. Example of our Lord sets a course for us that we can most assuredly follow in our daily lives.